Paul McCartney this morning. That's nice. Get our Sunday morning started. Uh, I had a little bit of, a, of an interesting week. I, um, my parents are in town, which my dad is real weird, so it makes it interesting just to start with. He, uh, I love my dad very much. He and I are best friends, but we're exactly alike, so that means he's real weird, um, because so am I. And uh, so that makes it interesting even to start with, but, but my parents wanted to go to Montreal, so on Monday, Thanksgiving Monday, went to Montreal, and uh, they were staying till Thursday, my parents and my sister and Amy and Kaya, they, they stayed till Thursday, but I needed to come back because I needed sermon prep time, so I got on a train on Wednesday and uh, prepped all the way, you know, read and, and, and studied and, and then did all day Thursday until they got home Thursday night, and I was reading back through Ecclesiastes again as we, you know, kind of are concluding our series in Ecclesiastes today um, and watching Solomon record in a journal, essentially, the kind of events that transpired and then the lessons he learned through a never-ending search for contentment. And Solomon's conclusion uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is, you know, here, here it is, fear God and keep his commandments. That, that's when everything has been heard. But, but really, the way that Solomon lived his life, it, it led him to kind of this place, this conclusion where he said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. In the original language, that word is habel. It's, it's, it means vapor. It means absurd. Life is absurd. It has no meaning. It has no significance. It has no purpose. And so I, as, as I'm reading the book and I, as I'm reading back through Ecclesiastes, I'm reading back through biblical scholarship and commentaries and whatever else and thinking about the nature of Solomon's conclusion. I was, like I said, I was on a train uh, coming from Montreal back here and I got a phone call from uh, one of my best friends. Actually, he's a guy that I've known since the fourth grade. He took my job at my old church at Scottsdale Bible. He's a pastor there now, fantastic guy. Known him for a really long time. And he said, hey, Luke, uh, I'm just calling because has anybody talked to you about this other mutual friend of ours? And I'm not going to mention his name, at least I'm going to try not to, just to kind of protect him. But, and I said, no, um, nobody's talked to me about him. And, and I, said, I said, what's going on? So this mutual friend of ours is, is a, f- a fantastic guy, or was a fantastic guy. You know where this story's going. And um, I have been friends with him for a long time. He and I worked at Scottsdale Bible Church together. Uh, I officiated both of his kids' weddings. I dedicated his grandchildren. He was a fantastic dad and a fantastic grandfather, a hard worker, a funny guy, a very strong man, very big man. But at some point over the last couple of years, for whatever reason, he reached this conclusion that everything was meaningless. Life was absurd and there was no purpose and no significance. So on Tuesday, he uh, made the decision to take his own life. And so on Wednesday, I got a call from this mutual friend of ours that said uh, this, this individual had taken his, his life. Now, uh, my friend knew Jesus personally and um, loved him and did his best to serve him. Uh, but again, came to this conclusion that, that everything was meaningless and that life was absurd and it's really not worth living anymore. So he made the decision to end his life. And so in the middle of studying this book of Ecclesiastes and rereading it one more time as I'm preparing for this sermon, it's almost just kind of hit me in a new way that this conclusion, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, leads us down a very nasty path, doesn't it? 
And none of us are immune from it. Like just because you know God, just because you walk with him, doesn't mean you can't reach that conclusion. If you go looking for contentment in places where you will never find contentment, you'll just get really, really tired and really, really wore out. And you'll come to this conclusion, just like my friend did, just like Solomon did, that everything is meaningless. And so it's almost as if Solomon this morning, especially as we're concluding our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's almost as if Solomon is begging us, is begging us, hey, listen close, because this conclusion that everything is meaningless is a dangerous, dangerous conclusion. And it's not right, it's not biblical, it, it, it's not accurate that everything is meaningless, but, but, but we're always in danger, no matter who you are, whether you come from a spiritual background or not, a religious background or not, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, whether you're a theist or an atheist, Solomon is begging us, please, please do not let yourself come to this conclusion that everything is meaningless, and we're all in danger of it, but please, please, let's talk about the meaning that is found in life. And that's what Solomon wants to talk to us about this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So let's pray together and prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. God, perhaps there are those here this morning that are despairing of life. Perhaps. Statistically speaking, probably are. God, breathe new life. Just as we sang, God, give new life to things we thought were dead. Give us new hope today. Give us new joy today. Help us find meaning and significance in the only place that meaning and significance are found. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning as we conclude this study in Ecclesiastes. The people of God together said, Amen. Well, again, as I was rereading uh, Ecclesiastes on Wednesday, it, it dawned on me that Ecclesiastes is a really pessimistic book. I mean, I don't know if you've read the thing from start to finish, but it's just pretty nasty. And every time you think Solomon's going to give you a little bit of hope, a little bit of something to hang on to, he just punches you in the gut. You know, he's usually just kind of setting us up for that left hook that says, you know, do you have hope? Do you have hope? Hopeless. Pow! Like, you know, remember those old commercials where people, use, you know, the, 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 the infomercials on TV and they're like, wait, there's more. Remember that? Like, wait, it gets better. It's almost as if throughout all of Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 12, Solomon just keeps going, but wait, it gets worse. Like, but wait, we still got more to go. We're still going downhill, but wait, it gets worse. Because in Ecclesiastes 1 through 8, what Solomon does is he tracks through. He says, I had everything that the world has to offer, power, fame, money, wealth, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I built a big house, and I had work, and I had everything the world had to offer, and I could never find contentment. I never found joy. I was never, ever, ever happy. And then he gets to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and he goes, but wait, it gets worse. Watch, Ecclesiastes 9. He says, but all this I laid to heart, this is verse 1, 
All this I laid to heart. And when he says all this, what he's talking about is chapters one through eight. All this searching for contentment, this never-ending search for joy, I was never fulfilled. All of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Okay, here we go. Pop quiz, hot shots. And this is going to be one of them interactive situations here, okay? So who is Solomon talking about? He's talking about the who. Oh, come on, for the love of all that's good and trustworthy. You got to answer the question. Who is Solomon talking about? He's talking about the and the. So is he talking about good people or bad people? Good people. They're not good people. And he says that love and hate await you. Both are before you, but you don't even know when they're coming. Like basically Solomon is saying good things happen to bad people. Good things happen to bad people, or bad things happen to good people. Sorry. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. That's also biblical, by the way, so it's not heretical. That's really great news, okay? But bad things happen to good people. And it's funny because there are preachers out there that might tell you, well, if you obey God, and if you pray enough, and if you have enough faith, always be good things that happen to you. Solomon says, no, 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 no. That's not a biblical concept. It's everybody's favorite Bible promise, right? Bad things will happen to good people. As Jesus would say, in this world, you will have trouble. I promise you. Thank you, happy Jesus. That was encouraging. We appreciate that. Solomon says, bad things will happen to good people, and you do not know what's before you. That's in the hand of God. It's in the mind of God. You don't know what's coming. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 2. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So, the people who don't want to take an oath, that don't want to make a promise because they have no integrity and they don't intend on fulfilling it. And to those who swear, not those who swear like say bad words, but those who make a promise, both the same event awaits both of them. Those who do not sacrifice and those who sacrifice, the clean, the unclean, the good and the sinner, the righteous and the wicked, everybody, the same event, the same for all, the same event happens. And what's that event? Death. Death happens. Again, but wait, it gets worse. Like Solomon just keeps taking us down this hill. It just gets worse and worse and worse. There will be good news eventually this morning, I promise you. But right now we're dealing with the bad news. And Solomon tells us, look, no matter how cool you are, no matter how famous you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how young you are, one day death will come calling. It is the great equalizer, and the playing field will be leveled, and distinctions will be no more, because every one of us will end up six feet under the ground. Like, I'm going to use some aggressive language here, because I want to try to reflect what's actually in the original Hebrew, what's in the original language, and I want you to prepare yourself emotionally, because this might feel a little bit aggressive, but I'm just trying to capture to the best of my ability what Solomon is trying to tell us. He's saying, no matter how awesome you think you are, one day you will die. They will paint you up like a clown and put you in a pine box and put you six feet under the ground. You can't avoid it. It's coming. 
Again, that might feel a little bit aggressive. I'm, again, I'm just doing my best to reflect what Solomon is trying to communicate here. It reminds me of a poet that I loved in university. Her name is Emily Dickinson. She uh, writes this. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. <laughs> I was too busy. I was too proud. I was too young. I was too cool. I was too rich. Too much fame. And I could not stop for death. So he was nice enough to stop for me. One day death will kindly stop for you. But wait, it gets worse. Keep going. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Solomon calls it out. This is accurate here because God didn't design the world with death. Death is a result of our first parents, Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, fracturing the cosmos, rebelling from God. Death was a consequence, so it was an evil. It's a consequence of their rebellion against God. So this is an evil that's done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children and men are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. Wow, this is very encouraging. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has what? Hope. Oh, finally. Some hope. And what's the hope? Here we go. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Like, this is no hope at all. Especially for Solomon's audience. Remember, because this is a Jewish audience uh, uh, 10 centuries before Christ. And dogs were not like cool little pets that we have in our home. Dogs were like mangy, nasty animals. In fact, wild dogs were known to eat human corpses back then. Like, lions were still this regal, stately animal, king of the jungle. And Solomon goes, look, here's your hope. Dead lion or living dog, which one do you want? And his audience is going, well, that's stupid. Like, that's no hope at all, Solomon. And then Solomon goes, but wait, it gets worse. Here we go. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. That makes sense. Thank you, Captain Obvious. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon says, life is short, then you die, and, and it won't be long until you're forgotten. But wait, it gets worse. Verse seven, Solomon says, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds it to do, do it with all of your might. See, there's all kinds of good stuff in here, isn't there? Look, it's highlighted up here on the screen. Eat your bread with joy. Like, nobody... like. Could you imagine eating all the pasta you wanted and not gaining weight, right? Like, go carbo-load, Solomon says. That's great. And drink your wine with a merry heart. That means go drink wine, drink your wine, that, uh, unless you have a situation and, and, a, and a substance abuse problem, then don't. But Solomon is saying, have a good time, enjoy life with a merry heart, with people who have a good sense of humor, 
Enjoy your friends. God has already approved what you do because he's given those things as gift. gifts. Let your garments be always white. And in the Old Testament, this was representative of celebration and joy. Let your garments be white. Same thing with oil on your head. So Solomon says, let not oil be lacking. Always celebrate. Enjoy life with the one whom you love. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Whatever your hand finds to do. So even find joy in your work, he says. Find joy in your toil. Well, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool. Okay, he's given us some hope here because there's something to enjoy in this life. But Solomon's tongue is firmly planted in his cheek here because look how he ends verse 10. For there is none of that stuff, thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which which you are going. Like Sheol here is not, this is not hell. This is just the afterlife. And he's saying like, enjoy it while you can because death's gonna come calling. And you can't avoid it. You can't escape it. Maybe you can delay it. Maybe. But enjoy it while you can. Because one day, you are going to die. And people are going to forget you. Let's pray to close. God, we, no. um, Is that not the worst news ever? Is that not the worst news ever? So look, as I'm reading, because I'm not a death guy. Like, there's some people, and they wear all black, and they have capes and, like, swords and stuff. And I don't know. They like to think about death, and they listen to weird music. I'm not that guy. Like, I'm, I'm a pretty happy guy. I'm a pretty optimistic guy. So reading back through Ecclesiastes, I'm like, this is, like, this is the, this is so pessimistic. And every time you feel set up for hope, Solomon just punches you in the gut every time. But wait, it gets worse. But wait, it gets worse. So here was my question as I reread Ecclesiastes again this past week. It's the same question that came up for me in week one. Here's the question. Why in the world would God choose to include this in the Bible? (laughs) Do 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 you see my question here? Doesn't this seem a little silly? Like, doesn't this seem a little absurd? Doesn't this seem a little bit, like, why would you choose to include this book in the Bible? It is not a happy book. So here's what I want to do today. I I, want to grab four concluding lessons from Ecclesiastes. And this is, in my study and my reading, seriously part of, and there's there's a bunch of stuff, but it's four things that I believe God was after when he chose to include Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And again, we believe as a church that that God inspired the word of God. God inspired this book. All of these books are in there for a reason, all 66 of them, including Ecclesiastes. So here's four lessons, four concluding lessons from the book of Ecclesiastes that might help us understand what God is getting at. Here's the first one. Ecclesiastes establishes a deadline and deadlines prompt choice. Ecclesiastes establishes a deadline, and deadlines prompt choice. What's the deadline that Solomon just established? Death. And deadlines prompt choice. Do you remember, like, when you were in high school, university, some of you still are high school and university, and at the beginning of the year, like, your professor, your instructor would publish for you a syllabus, and they wouldn't say, all right, it's September 1, welcome to the year, and at the end of the year, on December 15th, you have this big project due. Good luck. They didn't say that, right? They said, it's September 1, and on September 15th, I need your topic, and then on September 30th, I need your research, 
And then on October 15th, I need your first draft. And then on October 30th, I need your second draft. And then you're going to work through it with some peers in November. And then you're going to submit your annotated bibliography at the end of November. And then you're going to submit your final draft on December 15th. You remember that? You remember doing that? Am I the only one that had those type of professors? Not Okay, thank you, Dave Dowdell. Appreciate you, buddy. You know why they do that? Because deadlines force you to make a choice. You can't wait till December 14th to choose your topic because your thing is due on the 15th. You've got to make your decision on the topic on September 15th. It's the same thing that happens with athletes. You know, they play with a greater sense of urgency at the end of the game, don't they? When the time's about to run out, all of a sudden they get a little more aggressive. All of a sudden they get a little more intense. All of a sudden there's a little more urgency. And Solomon comes along and he says, you have a deadline in your life and it's called your own mortality. You will not live forever. So start making some choices now. The hope for Solomon here is that he would help us face our own mortality and understand that that mortality ought to prompt us to make some choices, to prompt us to make decisions, to move us to action. It's interesting. As a commentator, a Bible scholar that I was reading this week, he writes this. This, this, is, this is fascinating to me. He says, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon firmly presses our face up against the window of the mortuary. He says, look, you will end up there someday. Maybe sooner, maybe later, but you will inevitably end up there. You cannot avoid it. So how does the deadline of death impact what you do in the here and now? Because there will come a day when you cannot invest your money in eternal things anymore. There will come a day when you have no more time left. There will come a day when those fractured relationships in your life cannot be repaired anymore. There will come a day when your time is up. And you may not think you can stop for death, but death will kindly stop for you. So what are you doing in the here and now with your money, with your time, with the skills and abilities God has given you, with your relationships? What are you doing knowing that there is a deadline approaching? Lesson number two from the book of Ecclesiastes. Lesson number two is this. Ecclesiastes offers us a cheat code for life. <laughs> How many of you are from kind of my generation and you remember this? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, B, A, select, start. Good, fantastic, awesome. Just so you know, those are the nerds in the room, okay, that, that just raised their hand, just so everybody knows. And you know it. Don't shake your head at me, Jason. You know it. You know why I know they're nerds? Because that's the code for getting 30 men on Contra, which is like an original Nintendo video game. That's the cheat code. And they've memorized it from when they were like seven years old. And they still play video games now. Do you not? Yes. Good. Thank you, Jason. 
It, there were these cheat codes back in the day in video games that would allow you to kind of bypass all the levels. Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Anybody play Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? I don't want to fight Bald Bull or Soda Popinski anymore. I want to go fight Mike Tyson. So they gave you a cheat code to skip all that stuff and get to Tyson. I felt like the worst video game ever was the original Super Mario. And here's why. Because the whole point of Super Mario is to save the princess. Do you remember this? Some of you that played Super Mario? So save the princess. That's the whole point of the game. And every time you get to the end of the level and you beat like this weird thing called Bowser. It's like a turtle dragon, which is strange. Like it's a weird deal. And you beat the thing and, and you make Mario walk forward and Mario walks forward and there's a princess and you go, oh, man, I did it. I saved the princess. This is the game. And the princess used to say this. I'm sorry, Mario, but your princess is in another castle. <laughs> and I would leave bitter and disappointed and angry and deceived. And I would throw my controller at the screen, right? I want to bypass all of those levels. I want to get past all of that stuff and just get to the last level where I save the actual princess. I just want to skip all the other guys and just go fight Mike Tyson. I just want to skip all the levels on Contra and just go beat the game at the end of the thing with the laser gun or whatever it is. And Solomon says, I will give you a cheat code for your life. I have played all of the levels. And you know what was at the end of every level? Another level. And it never ends. And then finally I thought I beat the game. And you know what was at the end of the game? Another game. He would say it this way in Ecclesiastes 1. He would say, all rivers flow into the sea and the sea is just never full. Every time I thought I ticked the right box, there was just another one to tick. I, I had everything you could ever want and more. And every time I finished a level, I walked away bitter, disappointed, and deceived. And he says to us, if you listen, if you listen, I will give you the cheat code for your life that will allow you to bypass all those intermediate levels that you don't want to play anyway and just get to the ultimate level of joy and contentment and peace and life everlasting. That little video that we've uh, watched at the beginning of the sermon, that little bump video, I wrote the content for that. It's not my voice. That's a female voice, but um, I did write the content for it. Uh, and one of the things that I put in that content was this question that really has fascinated me and captivated my heart as I've studied the book of Ecclesiastes because Solomon got everything he ever wanted and he, and he still was not content, right? Everything he ever wanted and he still was not content. So here's the question. What would happen if you got everything you ever wanted and you were not content? I mean, I think that's the saddest place that somebody could be, Right? Like, because, watch, watch this. If, if there's something out there that you still really want and you're not content, at least you can blame it on something, right? At least you can, I didn't get that car, I didn't get that job, I didn't get that spouse, I didn't get everything I ever wanted, that's why I'm not content. But what would happen if you got everything you ever wanted and still were not content? This is why Ecclesiastes is so pessimistic. Because Solomon gets to the end of his life and he says, I got everything I ever wanted, and I'm not content. And so what he says to us 
is if you get beyond money, if you get beyond consumption, if you get beyond personal achievements, if you get beyond ego, if you get beyond having to prove anything to anyone, if you finish every level in life, you still will not find meaning. So you've got to look somewhere else. And Ecclesiastes does give us that answer because it carves out for us a God-shaped vacuum in our soul. This is like lesson number three, concluding lesson number three from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes reveals our God-shaped vacuum. Here's what I mean by that. That no matter what Solomon poured into that vacuum in his soul, that longing, that desire, no matter what he tried to grab onto, it always came up short. And so Solomon gets to the end of his life and realized that the vacuum inside of me can only be filled by God. 3,000 years later, give or take, a Christian thinker, philosopher, scientist, a guy named Pascal, who you may have heard of, Blaise Pascal, uh, would say this. He talks about this God-shaped vacuum. It's up here on the screen. He says this. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? That longing, that desire, that vacuum, that helplessness, what else does it tell us but that there was once in us a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This man tries in vain to fill with everything around him. That's what Solomon did, seeking in things that are not there, the, uh, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Now listen closely, I'm going to say this twice. Since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Pascal says this infinite abyss, this vacuum in your soul, can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, and that is God himself. In other words, you and I have a vacuum in our soul that only God can fill. We were created for God. Our deepest longings, our heart's desires, the infinite abyss inside of us can only be filled by the divine. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 1 through 12, Solomon uses this phrase 29 times, and it's the phrase under the sun. Under the sun. More than once per chapter. Under the sun. Solomon wants to be very, very clear with us. He says, look, my search for contentment was conducted entirely under the sun. I looked and looked and looked. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. Whatever I wanted, I took it. And I never found contentment. All I found was a vacuum, a hole still inside of me, an infinite abyss. And every river that I fed into that sea, the sea was never full. And so Solomon says this to us. If you cannot find contentment under the sun, where must you begin to look? Beyond the sun. If contentment is not found under the sun, you must begin to look beyond the sun. And Ecclesiastes points us beyond the sun. 
in this journal of unbridled hedonism called Ecclesiastes, Solomon has gotten our souls hungry for a morsel of hope and good news. And remember, he gives us none, does he? (laughs) No hope, no good news. And he leaves us with an unfulfilled longing. You know why? Because he doesn't have it. He doesn't have a morsel of good news. He doesn't have a morsel of hope because he only conducted his search under the sun. One, one Bible scholar, just so you know I'm not blowing smoke here, a Bible scholar that I love, a guy named Delish, um, uh, writes this. He's a linguist. He's, he's fantastic. This is, this, is, this is my dark sense of humor coming out, by the way. So I think this is really funny, just so everybody knows, so you can laugh at the end, so you know I think it's funny. Okay, here's what he, here, here's what he writes. Ecclesiastes' dark and pessimistic tone And the fear of death that is so prevalent in the book makes it the low point of the entire Bible. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to read it again. Then you'll get it this time. Okay, Ecclesiastes, dark and pessimistic tone. And the fear of death that is so prevalent in the book makes it the low point of the entire Bible. Thank you so much. That's so encouraging. It's the low point of the entire Bible. Why? Because it leaves us unsatisfied, bewildered, afraid, and alone. Faced with our own mortality, faced with our own ineptitude when it comes to fulfilling our own longings, having exhausted our resources here under the sun and come up empty-handed time and time again. And if contentment is not to be found under the sun, we must start looking Beyond the sun. Might be a good idea to look somewhere else. Perhaps beyond the world in which we live. Perhaps there is another world in which God lives. And maybe, just maybe, he could come down to this world under the sun and bring us the hope and the longing and the contentment and the joy that we have looked for time and time again and never found. And perhaps, just perhaps, in doing so, he could conquer that ultimate enemy of death that will eventually stop for us. And perhaps he could promise life eternal. Perhaps he could give us meaning and hope and significance because we cannot find it here under the sun. Thus, Ecclesiastes stirs in us a hunger for something greater. It points to us to this need we have for a Savior, a Redeemer, capital R, a Contentment Bringer, capital C. So throughout Ecclesiastes, Jesus is revealed not in his presence, but in his absence. It's not like a portrait that Solomon paints for us. It's like a silhouette on the horizon. Like a father waits for his son that has gone away and squandered his inheritance on loose living. Jesus is waiting for us and longing for us to return to him and say, I am tired of trying to exhaust my resources. I've grown weary and I cannot find contentment under the sun, so I'm going to come to you. And accept the life and joy that you give to me. And Ecclesiastes points us there. It lifts our countenance towards something greater than what we find here under the sun. There's a guy in our 
congregation, a good friend of mine and an elder, a fantastic guy who uh, really lived out these four principles. And it lived out uh, this book of Ecclesiastes in a lot of ways. You heard Al's story last week, and we're going to hear Gene's story right now. And what I want you to see is a life where Gene pursued contentment and never found it. Pursued it in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then finally, God called him back to himself, and now he's experiencing life and contentment and joy and peace that only Jesus can bring. We're going to watch Gene's story now, and we're going to conclude with a couple of things. Would you turn your eyes on the screen behind me? Well, I grew up in a, in a home, uh, non-traditional Roman Catholic. It was a muddy mixture of uh, uh, legalism and superstition, and uh, I just, I wasn't really aware of God's personal presence. I, I really was empty. Uh, there was nothing that uh, satisfied. There was, there was a lot of emotions, uh, rejection. So I, I, I began to live an immoral life. I was in a bar one night. They had exotic dancers, male exotic dancers, and I thought, I, I, can, I can do that. Um, so I went on audition, and uh, lo and behold, I, I thought I had hit the jackpot. Um, I thought this thing uh, is really gonna bring the satisfaction and uh, uh, the longing uh, of the inner person. My uh, first stage name was The Tempest. Uh, the only the only tempest was going on was inside of me, and, and the Italian stallion was the, the next name. So the anthem of uh, my life uh, had uh, been, you know, I, I'm, we're here for a good time, not a long time, so just go for, for the gusto. But it ended up uh, being, can't get no satisfaction, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, so I was disillusioned. Uh, completely, uh, well, distraught. I had pinned my hopes on this one thing, uh, but it failed. I felt so empty. I sensed that God was knocking on the door of my heart. I had people uh, speaking with me about God. I had, uh, I was reading books. Uh, uh, kinds of things that were happening where, where you know that there is a, a something beyond this, this life. And uh, so God kept pursuing me. March 7th, 1994, after about a period of four or five years, God knocking on the door, I repented uh, and surrendered my life. And, uh, Truly, God began to work in my, in my life. Uh, I'd been uh, driving a truck, and, and that was kind of the, a great vehicle to renew the mind, restore, uh, as it says, uh, the years that the locust had, had stolen, because my mind was completely skewed to uh, being God-centered, just uh, diametrically opposed, if you will. Uh, and, and so as God began to work, I, 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 
I really became satisfied with what he, what he was doing. I was longing for more. Our souls are restless until they rest in him. You know, the, the old nature is still around, but it doesn't reign and rule like before. Allow him to renew you, restore you, uh, because, you know, satisfaction ultimately is not found in, in things. Uh, it, it is in people, it's in relationship, and the ultimate relationship is a God who has come down to this very earth, lived the perfect life, died on my behalf and everyone else's behalf. And I, I want to serve because he's done for me what I could never do for myself. It takes a lot of courage. Would you thank Gene for sharing his story? I love the way that uh, Canadians say things, don't you? Because last week we heard Al's story and he goes, you know, I, w I went to South America, I was introduced to cocaine for the first time, one thing led to another and it became a business opportunity. Huh, huh, I think you missed some steps in there, but yeah, okay. Or Gene says, I was in a bar one night, there were male exotic dancers and I thought I could do that, so I went for an audition. Oh, okay, that's how that happened, okay, great. And I'm glad we found some PG pictures of Gene from back in the day too, that's kind of fun to keep it rated PG in here. Uh, you know, a couple of things that Gene said that I just think are really, um, really important for us to grab onto because this is the invitation of Ecclesiastes. Here's the first thing he said. He used this word, repent. Uh, and it's a Bible word. It's a Christian word. And some people have hijacked this word. I don't know if you've ever heard people use that word, repent, in an angry way. Have you ever heard that before? Like, repent, you know, or burn, or whatever it is. Like, that's not the biblical concept. That's not the tone that that word carries. The, 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 the word just means change your mind. That's all it means. It's simple. It's not an angry word. It just means change your mind. It just means that Gene said, I went looking for contentment in these places, and then I changed my mind. Or, or maybe better put, God changed my mind. And so I chose to follow God at that point and find the contentment and joy that I was looking for under the sun in him. The second thing that Gene says is, and I love it, it's an Augustine quote, it's, our souls are restless until they find rest in thee. Did you catch that? Our souls are restless until they find rest in God. See, because here's the invitation of Jesus. He says, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know you've exhausted yourself looking for contentment under the sun, and you haven't found it. And maybe you are an exotic dancer. Maybe you're not. But maybe you looked for contentment and joy in work, your career, in success or accolades, the approval of others. And maybe every time you tick a box and finish a level and think that you've got it, there's just another level to go. Maybe you look for it in relationship after relationship after relationship. Maybe you look for it in pats on the back. And you're coming up empty every time. You're thinking every one of those rivers flows into the sea, and the sea is never full, just like Solomon felt. Just like Gene felt. And you've come to this conclusion that everything is meaningless. It's just absurd. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's change your mind. Let, let, let's come back to me. 
Come to me to fill that God-shaped vacuum. Come to me for rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The last thing that Gene said, and I, it's just brilliant. He said, God did for me what I could not do for myself. Here's what the Bible teaches. That we've been crippled by our own sin and brokenness and rebellion. And so really, we're unable to reach up to God, reach out to God, whatever. So, so here's God's deal. God didn't want to just leave it that way, so he reached out to us. Isn't that cool? He sent his son, Jesus. He came in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ to do for you what you could never do for yourself, to do for me what I could never do for myself. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and died the death that you and I were meant to die. He paid it all, as we just sang. And then, and then check this out, three days later, up from the grave he rose, we sing on Easter. <laughs> and he said, you know that thing that you fear, that Solomon says death happens and it's gonna come for everybody? I beat that. I hold the keys to hell and death. I have victory over that, so come to me for contentment. Come to me for joy. Come to me for life everlasting. Perhaps you, know, you came in today knowing that you are engaging in a never-ending search for contentment, just like Solomon was. Perhaps you didn't know that, and then you came in today and you go, wow, that book, the Bible, it's got me pinned. Just read my mail. <laughs> and perhaps even faced with your own mortality or not even thinking about your own mortality, just thinking, man, I don't have the contentment that I'm longing for. But perhaps you've been prompted to make a choice this morning. And that choice is simply this, is to respond to the invitation of Jesus and come to him and say yes to him. And say, I accept your forgiveness as a free gift. And I accept your life as a free gift. And now I want to learn to find joy and contentment and life in you. If you've never made that decision before, if you've never said yes to Jesus, it's very, very simple. It's just a simple prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. And the great thing about it is that God hears your thoughts. He knows your heart. So you don't have to pray out loud. You just think it. And God hears it. And it's simply praying a prayer and it's saying this. God, I've been on a never-ending search for contentment, and I hadn't found it yet. As it was the song we just heard, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And today, I want to come to you because I, I believe you have it. I believe you have it. The forgiveness and life and joy and peace that I can't find on my own. And if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity to make that choice. So would you just bow your head? Close your eyes, if you would, just kind of to block out distractions. Forget about the people around you. Bowing our heads and closing our eyes is not the biblical posture of prayer, just so you know. It's just an opportunity that we have to uh, kind of reflect what's going on in our hearts with a, with a physical posture. Bowing our head represents kind of bowing our hearts before God. Closing our eyes just kind of blocks out distractions because this is not between you and others. This is between you and God. There are no hoops to jump through. There are no classes to attend. 
you don't have to clean up your life and then come to God for life and contentment and joy. In fact, God says, you bring your mess. You bring everything you've got to me. And like a father is waiting for his long lost kid to come home, God is waiting for you to run to his arms today. I'm going to kind of give you some words that you might choose to pray or kind of make them your own if you'd like to do that. But I just want to kind of give you some prompts if you'd like to make that choice today. You can just pray this prayer in the quietness of your heart. Like I say, you don't have to say it out loud. It's something like, God, I've been searching for contentment in things under the sun. I've searched for contentment in you fill in the blank. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Work, career, accolades, achievement, the approval of others. I've searched for contentment maybe in these different spiritual paths. I've searched for contentment even within myself. And, and I realize all those things, I realize today all those things are under the sun. And I need to look beyond the sun. So today I look to you for the first time. Jesus, I accept what you did for me on the cross. I accept the forgiveness that you extend. And because you are risen to new life, I know you hold the keys to Sheol, to hell and death. And you can give me new life and restore me and renew me and teach me to live in that contentment and joy that I've longed for. Just with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would, nobody looking around, I'm going to ask you if you said yes to Jesus for the first time today to make a really bold and courageous choice. And I'm going to ask you to just to slip your hand up. You don't have to do it quite yet. I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up just so I know, just so I can pray for you and just speak a little bit of life over you uh, this morning. So if you prayed that prayer for the first time and said yes to the invitation of Jesus, nobody's looking around between you and God, slip your hand up for me, would you? One, two, three, go. Sweet. Fantastic. Welcome to the family of God. Listen closely now. God loves you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. <laughs> he didn't quit early when he made you. He didn't mess up. He created you just like you are with a longing for him. And the Bible says there's only one time heaven throws a party and it's when a sinner repents. <laughs> and there are so many sinners around you that have repented and changed their mind just like you just did. And this moment, heaven is throwing a party for you. There is a banner with your name on it. The angels are going, woohoo! One more finding life and joy and contentment and hope and satisfaction and all the things that our hearts long for. It's pretty cool. God, thank you for those who said yes to you today and receive that new life that you offer, receive that rest, that satisfaction and contentment. God, for every one of us in this place, I pray that you would teach us every day 
to be renewed and restored, just like Gene talked about on his video. It just didn't happen in an instant, but it was a lifetime, and a lifetime that continues even now, because I know Gene, and learning to find contentment and satisfaction in you and in you alone. And all of us are in different parts of that journey. Those, some just started their journey today. Some of us are down the path a little bit, but all of us learning every day what it means to look to you for the things that only you can provide. Christ's name, amen. As we conclude our service this morning, we're gonna do something that the church has been doing for 2,000 years. We're gonna receive communion. Uh, here's here's kind of what happened. Uh, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating dinner with his uh, disciples, Passover meal. Look up at me. I know ushers are moving, but look up at me here. He was celebrating a meal with his disciples, and he took bread, and he gave thanks. He prayed. He thanked God for his provision. He broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body. Take, eat, and remember me. Then he said, this cup represents a new covenant that's in my blood. Take, drink, and remember me. So for 2,000 years, here's what the church has been doing. A little piece of bread and a little cup, just a little juice, a couple of symbols of the price that Jesus paid, of the, of the extent that God went to to redeem you and me and restore our life. These are elements of celebration. For those of you who just said yes to Jesus for the first time today, this is a great opportunity for you. The very first time you're taking communion as a, as a new follower of Jesus, someone who's learning to receive life and joy from him. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. And for those of us who have walked with Jesus or are walking with Jesus or said yes to his invitation weeks ago, months ago, years ago, this is our opportunity now to confess known sin enjoy God's forgiveness, to allow the weight of this moment to sit on us and to celebrate together all that God has done. We're going to sing as we do that. Ushers, if you would come forward and distribute the elements, I would invite you to just hold those elements and we'll take them together here in a few moments.